Section 43 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. But what the Altaian armies lacked in numbers was made up for by their skill in surprises, their fury, their cunning, mobility, and elusiveness, and the panic which preceded them and froze the blood of all peoples. On their marvelously fleet horses they could traverse immense distances, and their scouts provided them with accurate local information as to the remotest lands and their weakness. Add to this the enormous advantage that among them even the most insignificant news spread like wildfire from all to all by means of voluntary couriers surpassing any intelligence department however well organized the tactics of the mongols are described by marco polo in agreement with plano carpini and all the other writers as follows they never let themselves come to close quarters but keep perpetually riding round and shooting into the enemy and as they do not count it any shame to run away in battle they will sometimes pretend to do so and in running away they turn in the saddle and shoot hard and strong at the foe and in this way make great havoc their horses are trained so perfectly that they will double hither and thither just like a dog in a way that is quite astonishing thus they fight to as good purpose in running away as if they stood and faced the enemy because of the vast volleys of arrows that they shoot in this way turning round upon their pursuers who are fancying that they have won the battle but when the tartars see that they have killed and wounded a good many horses and men they wheel round bodily and return to the charge in perfect order and with loud cries and in a very short time the enemy are routed in truth they are stout and valiant soldiers and inured to war and you perceive that it is just when the enemy sees them run and imagines that he has gained the battle that he has in reality lost it for the tartars wheel round in a moment when they judge the right time has come and after this fashion they have won many a fight the chronicler peter of zitau in the year thirteen fifteen described the tactics of the magyars in exactly the same way when a vigorous conqueror like attila or chinggis arose among the mounted nomads and combined several hordes for a cyclonic advance they swept all before them on the march like a veritable avalanche of peoples the news of the onward rolling flood scared the bravest people and compelled them to fly from their homes thus their neighbors too were set in tumultuous motion and so it went on till some more powerful state took defensive measures and stemmed the tide of peoples now the fugitives had to face the assailant a battle of nations was fought the flower of famous peoples strewed the field and powerful nations were wiped out the deserted or devastated territories were occupied by peoples hitherto often quite unknown or settled by nations forcibly brought there by the conqueror states generally without duration and kept together only by the one powerful hand were founded the giant state having no cohesion from within fell to pieces at the death of the conqueror or shortly after but the sediment of peoples together with a stratum of their nomad oppressors which remained from the flood could not be pushed back again and immense areas of a continent received once again an entirely new ethnography 
the work of one single furious conqueror oftener and longer than in europe successive altaian empires held together in asia where the original population had long become worn out by eternal servitude and the central zone of the steppes supplied a near and secure base for plundering hordes that some of these asiatic empires attained to a high degree of prosperity is not due to the conquerors who indeed quickly demongolized themselves by marriage with aliens but was the consequence of the geographical position the productivity of the soil and the resigned tractableness and adaptability of the subjugated who in spite of all the splendor of their masters were forced to languish in helpless servitude out of central asia from time immemorial one nomad horde after another broke into the steppes of south russia and of hungary and after exterminating or pushing out their predecessors and occupying their territories used this new base to harry and enslave the surrounding peoples far and wide forcibly transforming their whole being as in fergana but the bestial fury of the nomads not only laid bare the country recklessly depopulated enormous tracts dragged off entire peoples and forcibly transplanted and enslaved them but where their sway was of any duration they brought their subjects down to the level of brutes and extirpated every trace of nobler feeling from their souls central asia of to-day as van Bray states from personal observation is a sink of all vices and franz von schwarz draws the following cheerless picture of the turkestan sarts among whom he lived for fifteen years with respect to character they are sunk as low as man can possibly be but this is not at all to be wondered at as for thousands of years they were oppressed and enslaved by all possible peoples against whom they could only maintain themselves by servility cunning and deceit the sart is cowardly fawning cringing reticent suspicious deceitful revengeful cruel and boastful at the same time he shows in his appearance and manner a dignity and bearing that would compel the uninitiated to regard him as the ideal of a man of honor in the former native states as in bokhara and kiva today the entire system of government and administration was based exclusively on lying deceit and bribery and it was quite impossible for a poor man to get justice the opposite of the sart is his oppressor the kirghiz who is shy morose and violent but also honorable upright good-hearted and brave the terrible slave-hunting turkoman is distinguished from all other central asiatics by his bold and piercing glance and proud bearing in wild bravery no other race on earth can match itself with him and as a horseman he is unsurpassed he has an unruly disposition and recognizes no authority but his word can be absolutely relied upon what a tragic fate for an enslaved people although its lowest degradation is already behind it how long yet will it be the object of universal and not unnatural contempt while its former oppressor void of all humane feeling as a professional murderer and cattle thief remains as a hero an ideal superman so long as the dominant nomad horde remains true to its wandering life it lives in the midst of the subjugated only in winter and proceeds in spring to the summer pastures 
but it is wise enough to leave behind overseers and guards to prevent revolts the individual nomad has no need to keep many slaves besides he would have no occupation and no food for them and so an entire horde enslaves entire peoples who must provide food for themselves in so far as he does not winter directly among them the nomad only comes to plunder them regularly leaving them nothing but what is absolutely indispensable the peasantry had to supply the nomads and their herds who wintered among them with all that was demanded for this purpose they stored up grain and fodder during the summer for in central and east europe the snow falls too deep for the herds to be left to scrape out fodder alone during the winter the wives and daughters of the enslaved became a prey to the lusts of the yellow skins by whom they were incessantly violated and thus every conjugal and family tie and as a further consequence the entire social organization was seriously loosened the ancient indo-european patriarchal principle which has exclusively prevailed among the altaeans also from the earliest times languished among the enslaved just because of the violation and loosening of the conjugal bond which often continued for hundreds of years the matriarchal principle came into prominence for the altaean adulterer repudiated bastards and still more did the husband where there was one so the children followed the mother where therefore matriarchal phenomena occur among indo-europeans usually among the lower strata of population they are not survivals of pre-patriarchal times but probably arose later from the corruption of married life by systematic adultery thus the subjugated indo-europeans became here more there less mongolized by the mixture of races and in places the two superimposed races became fused into a uniform mixed people footnote the mongol type of features extends westward to bavaria and Württemberg. End of footnote. Indo-European usage and law died out, and the savage willfulness of the Altaeans had exclusive sway. Revolutions among the people driven to despair followed, but they were quelled in blood, and the oppression exercised still more heavily. Even if here and there the yoke was successfully shaken off, the emancipated, long paralyzed and robbed of all capability of self-organization, were unable to remain independent commonly they fell into anarchy and then voluntarily gave themselves up to another milder seeming servitude or became once more the prey of an if possible rougher conqueror in consequence of the everlasting man-hunting and especially the carrying off of women in foreign civilized districts there ensued a strong mixing of blood and the altaian race characteristics grew fainter especially to the south and west the Greeks, by the time of Alexander the Great, were no longer struck by the Mongol type, already much obliterated, of the nomads pasturing in the district between the Oxus and the Jaxartes. This led to the supposition that these nomads had belonged to the Indo-European race and had originally been settled peasants, and that they had been compelled to limit themselves to animal rearing and to become nomads, only after the conversion of their fields to deserts through the evaporation of the water basins this supposition is false as we have seen before the steppes and deserts of central asia are an impassable barrier for the south asiatics the aryans but not for the north asiatic the altaian 
For him, they are an open country, providing him with the indispensable winter pastures. On the other hand, for the South Asiatic Aryan, these deserts are an object of terror, and besides, he is not impelled towards them, as he has winter pastures near at hand. It is this difference in the distance of summer and winter pastures that makes the North Asiatic Altaian an ever-wandering herdsman, and the grazing part of the Indo-European race cattle-rearers settled in limited districts. Thus, while the native Iranian must halt before the trackless region of steppes and deserts, and cannot follow the well-mounted robber nomad thither, Iran itself is the object of greatest longing to the nomadic Altaian. Here he can plunder and enslave to his heart's delight, and if he succeeds in maintaining himself for a considerable time among the Aryans, he learns the language of the subjugated people, and by mingling with them loses his Mongol characteristics more and more. If the Iranian is now fortunate enough to shake off the yoke, the dispossessed, ironized Altaian intruder inflicts himself upon other lands. So it was with the Scythians. Leaving their families behind in the South Russian steppes, the Scythians invaded Medea circa B.C. 630 and advanced into Mesopotamia and Syria as far as Egypt. In Medea they took Median wives and learned the Median language. After being driven out by Syaxares, on their return some twenty-eight years later, they met with a new generation, the offspring of the wives and daughters whom they had left behind, and slaves of an alien race. A thorough mixture of race within a single generation is hardly conceivable. A hundred and fifty years later, Hippocrates found them still so foreign, so Mongolian, that he could say that they were very different from the rest of mankind, and only like themselves, as are also the Egyptians. He remarked their yellowish-red complexion, corpulence, smooth skins, and their consequent eunuch-like appearance, all typically Mongol characteristics. Hippocrates was the most celebrated physician and natural philosopher of the ancient world. His evidence is unshakable and cannot be invalidated by the Aryan speech of the Scythians. Their Mongol type was innate in them, whereas their Iranian speech was acquired and is no refutation of Hippocrates' testimony. On the later Greek vases from South Russian excavations, they already appear strongly demongolized, and the Altaian is only suggested by their hair, which is as stiff as a horse's mane. Hence, Aristotle's epithet, F. the Trishis, the characteristic that survives longest among all Ural Altaian hybrid peoples. If a nomad army is obliged to take foreign, non nomadic wives, there occurs at once a dualism, corresponding to the two sexes in the language and way of living of each individual household. The new wives cannot live in the saddle. They do not know how to take down the tent, load it on the beasts of burden, and set it up again, and yet they must share the restless life of the herdsmen. Consequently, where the ground admits of it, as in South Russia, the tent is put on wheels and drawn by animals. Thus the Scythian women were hamaxobiotic, wagon-inhabiting, the men, however, remained true to their horse-riding life and taught their boys, too, as soon as they could keep themselves in the saddle. But the dualism in language could not maintain itself. The children held to the language of the mother, the more easily because even the fathers understood Medish, and so the Altaian Scythian people, 
with their language finally ironized, became Iranian. But their mode of life remained unchanged. The consumption of horse flesh, soured horse's milk, kumis, and cheese of the same, the hemp vapor bath for men, the women bathed differently, singeing of the fleshy parts of the body as a cure for rheumatism, poisoning of the arrow tips, wholesale human offerings, and slaughter of favorite wives at the burials of princes, the placing on horseback of the stuffed bodies of murdered warriors round the grave, etc. All such customs as are found so well defined among the Mongols of the Middle Ages. The modern Tartars of the Crimea, whose classical beauty sometimes rivals that of the Greeks and Romans, underwent in the same land the same change to the Aryan type. The same is the case with the Magyars, whose mounted nomadic mode of life and fury, and consequently their origin, was Turkish, but their language was a mixture of Ugrian and Turkish on an Ugrian basis. Evidently a Magyar army, Turkish in blood, formerly advanced far to the north, where it subdued an Ugrian people and took Ugrian wives. The children then blended the Ugrian speech of their mothers with the Turkish speech of their fathers but they must also once have dominated Indo-European peoples and mixed themselves very strongly with them, for Gardizi's original source from the middle of the ninth century describes them as handsome, stately men. At that time they were leading the nomad existence in the Pontic steppe, the old Scythia, whence they engaged in terrible slave-hunting among the neighboring Slavs, and as they were notorious women-hunters, they must have assimilated much Slav, Alan, and Circassian blood, and thus became handsome, stately men. However, the change did not end there. At the end of the ninth century, their army, on its return from a predatory expedition, found their kindred at home totally exterminated by their deadly enemies, the Patsanaks, a related stock. Consequently, the whole body had again to take foreign wives, and they occupied the steppes of Hungary. Before this catastrophe, the Magyars were said to have mustered 20,000 horsemen, an oriental exaggeration, for this would assume a nomad people of 200,000 souls. Consequently, only a few thousand horsemen could have fled to Hungary. There, they mixed themselves further with the medley race conglomeration settled there, which had formed itself centuries before, and assimilated stragglers from the related Patsanak stock. By this absorption, the Altaian type asserted itself so predominantly that the Frankish writers were never tired of depicting their ugliness and loathsomeness in the most horrifying colors. Their fury was so irresistible that in 63 years they were able, with impunity, to make 32 great predatory expeditions as far as the North Sea, and to France, Spain, Italy, and Byzantium. Thus the modern Magyars are one of the most varied race mixtures on the face of the earth, and one of the two chief Magyar types of today, traced to the Arpad era by tomb findings, is dolicocephalic with a narrow visage. Thus we have before us Altaian origin, Ugrian speech, and Indo-European type combined. Such metamorphoses are typical for all nomads who, leaving their families at home, attack foreign peoples, and at the same time make war on one another. In the furious tumult in which the Central Asiatic mounted hordes constantly swarmed and fought one another for the spoils, it is to be presumed that nearly all such people, 
like the Scythians and Magyars, at least once sustained the loss of their wives and children. The mounted nomads could therefore remain a pure race only where they constantly opposed their own kin, whereas to the south and west they were merged so imperceptibly in the Semitic and Indo-European stock that no race boundary is perceivable. The most diversified was the destiny of those mounted nomads who became Romanized in the Balkan Peninsula, Romanians or Vlachs, Vlachos, but, surprising as it may be outside the steppe region, remain true to this day to their life as horse and sheep nomads, wherever this is still at all possible. During the summer they grazed on most of the mountains of the Balkan Peninsula, and took up their winter quarters on the sea coasts among a peasant population speaking a different language. Thence they gradually spread, unnoticed by the chroniclers, along all the mountain ranges, over all the Carpathians of Transylvania, North Hungary, and South Galicia to Moravia, towards the northwest from Montenegro, onwards over Herzegovina, Bosnia, Istria, as far as South Styria, towards the south over Albania far into Greece. In the entire Balkan Peninsula, there is scarcely a span of earth which they have not grazed, and like the peasantry among which they wintered and winter long enough, they became, and become, after a transitory bilingualism, Greeks, Albanians, Serbians, Bulgarians, Ruthenians, Poles, Slovaks, Czechs, Slovenes, Croatians, seeing that they appeared there not as a compact body, but as a mobile nomad stratum among a strange-tongued and more numerous peasant element, and not till later did they gradually take to agriculture and themselves become settled. In Istria they are still bilingual. On the other hand, they maintain themselves in Romania, East Hungary, Bukovina, Bessarabia, for the following reasons. The central portion of this region, the Transylvanian mountain belt, sustained with its rich summer pastures such a number of grazing camps, Romanian Katun, Mongolian Koton, that the nomads in the favorable winter quarters of the Romanian plain were finally able to absorb the Slav peasantry, already almost wiped out by the everlasting passage through them of other wild nomad peoples. In Macedonia, too, a remainder of them still exists. Were they not denationalized, the Romanians today would be by far the most numerous, but also the most scattered, people of South Europe, not less than 20 million souls. The Romanians were not descendants of Roman colonists of Dacia left behind in East Hungary and Transylvania. Their nomadic life is a confutation of this, for the Emperor Trajan, after A.D. 107, transplanted settled colonists from the entire Roman Empire, and after the removal and withdrawal of the Roman colonists, circa A.D. 271, Dacia, for untold centuries, was the arena of the wildest international struggles known to history, and these could not have been outlived by any nomad people remaining there. To be sure, some expressed the opinion that the Romanian nomad herdsmen fled into the Transylvanian mountains at each new invasion, by the Huns, Bulgarians, Avars, Magyars, Patsanaks, Cumans, successively, and subsequently always returned. But the nomad can support himself in the mountains only during the summer, and he must descend to pass the winter, 
On the other hand, each of these new invading nomad hordes needed these mountains for summer grazing for their own herds. Thus the Romanians could not have escaped, and their alleged game of hide-and-seek would have been in vain. But south of the Danube also the origin of the Romanians must not be sought in Roman times, but much later, because nomads are never quickly denationalized. For in the summer they are quite alone on the otherwise uninhabited mountains, having intercourse with one another in their own language, and only in their winter quarters among the foreign-speaking peasantry are they compelled in their dealings with them to resort to the foreign tongue. Thus they remain for centuries bilingual before they are quite denationalized, and this can be proved from original sources precisely in the case of the Romanians, Vlachs, in the old kingdom of Servia. Accordingly, the Romanizing of the Romanians presupposes a Romance peasant population already existing there for a long time and of different race. And then, very gradually, after some centuries, forgot their own language. In what district could this have taken place? For nomads outside the salt steppe, the seacoast offers, precisely on account of the salt and the mild winter, the most suitable winter quarters. And, as a matter of fact, from the earliest times, certain shores of the Adriatic, the Ionian, Aegean, and Marmora, were crowded with Vlachian Katuns, and are partly so at the present time. Among all these sea districts, however, only Dalmatia had remained so long Romanic as to be able entirely to Romanize a nomad people. Footnote. Jiracek assigns the center of the oldest Romanians to Servia and its neighborhood, where the district in which the Latin language was spoken was the most extended, because the Romanian language is very different from the dialect of the ancient Dalmatians but because the central lands offer few suitable winter pastures on account of their raw climate and heavy snowfall, it must be assumed that the district in which the Romanic speech adopted by the ancestors of the Romanians was spoken somewhere reached notwithstanding to the Adriatic Sea. End of footnote. From this district, the expansion of the Romanians had its beginning, so that the name Daco-Romanians is nothing but a fiction. The Spanish and Italian nomad shepherds, too, can have had no other origin. Allens took place in Radagaius's invasion of Italy in 405, and, having advanced to Gaul, founded in 411 a kingdom in Lusitania, which was destroyed by the Visigoths. The remainder advanced into Africa with the Vandals in 429. Traces of the Allens remained for a long time in Gaul. Sarmatian and Bulgarian hordes accompanied Alboin to Italy in 568, and twelve places in northern Italy are still called Bulgaro, Bulgari, etc. A horde of Altaian Bulgars fled to Italy later, and received from the Lombard Grimoald, 662-672, extensive and hitherto barren settlements in the mountains of Abruzzi and their neighborhood. In the time of Paulus Diaconus, 797, they also spoke Latin, but their mother tongue was still intact, for only on their winter pastures in Apulia and Campania, in contact with Latin peasants in whose fields they encamped, were they compelled to speak Latin. The old Roman sheep-rearing pursued by slaves has no connection with nomadism. Therefore, neither the non-Mongol appearance nor the Semitic, Indo-European, or Finno-Ugrian language of any historical mounted nomad people 
can be held as a serious argument for their Semitic, Indo-European, or Finno-Ugrian origin. Everything speaks for one single place of origin for the mounted nomads, and that is in the Turanian Mongol steppes and deserts. These alone, by their enormous extent, their unparalleled severity of climate, their uselessness in summer, their salt vegetation nourishing countless herds, and above all by their indivisible economic connection with the distant grass-abounding north. These alone give rise to a people with the ineradicable habits of mounted nomads. The Indo-European vocabulary reveals no trace of a former mounted nomadism. There is no ground for speaking of Indo-European, Semitic, Finno-Ugrian nomads, but only of nomads who have remained Altaic or of Indo-Europeanized, Semiticized, Ugrianized nomads. The Scythians became Iranian, the Magyars Ugrian, the Avars and Bulgarians Slavic, and so on. The identical origin of all the mounted nomads of historic and modern times is also demonstrated by the identity of their entire mode of life, even in its details and most trivial particulars, their customs and their habits. One nomad people is the counterfeit of the other, and after more than 2,000 years, no change, no differentiation, no progress is to be observed among them. Accordingly, we can always supplement our not always precise information about individual historical hordes and the consequences of their appearance by comparisons with the better known hordes. We are best informed about the Mongols of the 13th century and that by Rogerius Canon of Varad, Thomas Archdeacon of Spalato, Plano Carpini, Rubucris, Marco Polo, and others, whose accounts are therefore indispensable for a correct estimation of all earlier nomadic invaders of Europe. This is the role of nomadism in the history of the world. Countries too distant from its basis, it could only ravage transitorily with robbery, murder, fire, and slavery. But the stamp which it left upon the peoples which it directly dominated or adjoined remains uneffaceable. The Orient, the cradle and chief nursery of civilization, it delivered over to barbarism. It completely paralyzed the greater spirit of Europe, and it transformed and radically corrupted the race, spirit, and character of countless millions for incalculable ages to come. That which is called the inferiority of the East European is its work and had Germany or France possessed steppes like Hungary, where the nomads could also have maintained themselves, and thence completed their work of destruction, in all probability the light of West European civilization would long ago have been extinguished. The entire Old World would have been barbarized, and at the head of civilization today would be stagnant China. End of section 43. Recording by Colleen McMahon.